Hi, and welcome to the Rocky River United Methodist Podcast. And uh, just really excited to be with everyone um, again for another um, session when we're going to be talking about um, how to read your Bible. And um, in this series, we're just kind of breaking down um, different steps and, and guiding you through um, what we hope will help you um, read your Bible better. Um, and I know Paul and I are both learning when it comes to Scripture. I mean, Scripture is the depth of Scripture is so deep, uh, you can't reach the bottom of it. So we're always learning, and we're learning along right along with you. But we hope that what we're sharing um, can be a benefit to you and, and your own um, Bible study. And also when, when you get together in groups, um, Bible study groups, um, you can also share what you have learned, and hopefully this podcast can help you towards that. Um, so this week we're going to be talking about historical context, um, historical context. So when it comes to scriptures, to the scripture, we know that it was written over 2,000 years ago, and it wasn't written for um, in the 21st century, obviously. So to really get to um, really understanding the scriptures deeply, we got to understand the historical context and how important that is um, to to us understanding um, the Bible more. When we get to the nitty and gritty, which this podcast might get to the nitty gritty, uh, just a kind of a warning. Um, but when we get down into it, um, into the history, I think it really opens up the Bible even more. And you might see things you might, uh, you probably hadn't seen before. So again, we're going to be talking about historical context. And we're going to have two um, points to make in the Old Testament and then two to make in the, in the New Testament. So, Paul, do you want to start us off? Sure, Stephen. Here, uh, here comes the nitty gritty. You, you warned them, so here we go. Uh, so yeah, once again, uh, we're covering four different passages: uh, two from the old, two from the new. And our first passage to get get right to work here uh, comes from the book of Genesis, chapter twenty-five. And uh, once again, our focus is going to be on historical uh, context, which uh, incorporates both the the history of the passage, um, not the passage itself, but the history. Uh, historical um, context, the the factor, historical factors, uh, historical atmosphere, um, everything that you need to know about the history of the the time period that this is placed in, the location, the the people, the individual characters from the story, and um, also the culture, the the culture that they lived within. So all of that comes uh, to play when we look at historical context. And uh, we discussed last week genres, and this uh, particular passage falls within the uh, historical narrative genre. So this is a narrative uh, from Genesis 25, so we're in the first book of the Bible, and we're going to be discussing uh, the story of Jacob and Esau, or at least a, a portion of that story, from verses 29 through 34, uh, initially here in the book of Genesis chapter 25. And uh, since it's a shorter passage, I'll go ahead and read it for you. Uh, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. All right, so uh, first of all, some, some big picture historical context here. We often 
uh, learn about Abraham. Abraham was the first man that God really began to groom uh, to, to begin to establish his nation, his people in the world. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had twin sons by the names of Esau and Jacob. Esau was older than Jacob, but only by mere seconds. In fact, the, the story of their birth tells us that Jacob was grabbing onto Esau's heel as uh, they came forth from the womb. Now, in this passage, we see Esau basically selling Jacob his birthright. What is the birthright? The birthright was the oldest son's share of the material estate of the family. Uh, So in the ancient world, the firstborn usually received a double portion of the inheritance. So Esau was the oldest. So basically, they would have broken down the inheritance into three different pots. Esau would have gotten two out of those three, being one of, of two sons and being the oldest. Uh, so this is not an easy pill for a younger son to swallow, especially though when you're a twin and you're younger by a mere couple of seconds. Uh, it certainly could lead to some bitterness and some resentment. What else can we learn from the, the historical context of this passage as we try to make sense uh, of it and begin to then apply it to our lives? Well, history can help us solve a few questions. First of all, uh, why is Jacob cooking stew in this passage? Uh, we know that uh, Jacob, from, from the historical context, was uh, part of a well-to-do family coming down from Abraham and Isaac. So shouldn't there have been a, a servant that was doing that task uh, for the family? And uh, secondly, why, when Esau shows up, um, didn't he appeal to his father and say, you know, Dad, Jacob's trying to force me to sell me, uh, sell him my birthright all for this, this cup of stew, this bowl of stew. Uh, why did Esau feel like he had no other choice but to sell his birthright over to Jacob in order to survive and not die of starvation? Well, uh, this is where we start piecing together some, some clues from the historical context. First, it tells us earlier in the chap- chapter that Esau was a great hunter, uh, but Jacob was content with more domestic work, likely to include grazing uh, the animals that the family owned. So perhaps this story, as we begin to piece things together, occurs away from home at a, a camp of some sort, maybe a shepherd's camp, where Jacob, the domestic uh, worker of the two, is overseeing the grazing of the flocks and the herds in an area away from their home so that uh, the fields could maybe recover closer to home uh, from the flocks having grazed in them for a great deal of time. So uh, we're maybe away from home here. So when Esau stumbles into this camp, uh, starving half to death, and dad, Isaac, is not around, Jacob uh, sees an opportunity here and he seizes it to take advantage of the situation and basically uh, force Esau into a situation where he is selling his his birthright, the most valuable thing uh, that he has for a, a silly cup of stew. And uh, the passage tells us Esau, it looks down on Esau because he didn't treasure his birthright like he should have. Uh, they use the word despised, or we might say he devalued his birthright. So uh, we shift our, our focus now. The second piece of, of um, this story, which is, uh, to me, it's it's uh, equally valuable when we're talking historical context. We shift to Genesis 27, and we go from talking about birthrights to blessings. So Isaac, uh, in this passage, is getting up there in years. I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to summarize it for you because the passage, I, I believe, is like 47 verses long. And uh, Stephen doesn't want me to read the whole 47 verses because he's itching to get to his turn. Uh, So my summary is this. Isaac is getting up there in years. He may be beginning to lose some of his faculties. He's he's, uh, feeling frail, uh, like maybe he's close to death. He decides it's time to bestow his blessing 
upon his chosen son. So he tells Esau, his oldest, that he would be the son to receive that blessing. And he sends him out to go hunting and come back with uh, food so they can have a big feast and celebrate Isaac uh, giving his blessing to his oldest son. The problem is that Rebecca, Isaac's uh, wife, who for whatever reason favored their younger son Jacob over Esau, he overhears this, this conversation. He decides to try and pull this stunt uh, to make sure that the son that she wants actually gets the blessing. Uh, and this is what it's going to look like. Jape, Jacob is going to pretend to be Esau. Uh, presumably, once again, Isaac's uh, faculties, his, his eyesight is very poor maybe here, perhaps on top of all of uh, his other senses being poor as well. And, uh, and, and Jacob's going to be able to go in and receive Isaac, or Esau's blessing by pretending to be him. So she covers Jacob with animal hair. Since Esau is hairier than Jacob, she puts Jacob in Esau's clothes so that he even smells the same. And he sends, she sends Jacob in to receive Esau's blessing. How Jacob gets away with this is a, a mystery. It seems like it would be impossible. Um, but perhaps Esau, once again, is uh, losing some of his mental abilities, capabilities. He's not as sharp as he once was. Um, Jacob's able to deceive his own father and receive Esau's blessing. Now, not two minutes later, Jacob walks out and Esau returns from his hunt. He goes into his father's tent, all excited to receive his blessing. And he finds out, both he and his father find out um, at the same time that Jacob had come in and stolen uh, his blessing. And once a blessing is, is handed out, it cannot be retracted. Uh, so there is great weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Uh, so this is, uh, this is the summary, but what can we learn from the historical context as we break down this passage? So we've shifted from birthright uh, to blessing. Isaac is, is feeling old. He's feeling frail. Um, the, the actual context later on in Genesis, we find out that uh, Isaac lives several decades, maybe even beyond this, um, to the ripe old age of 180. But either way, at this point, he's feeling uh, old and frail. He wants to pass on his blessing. And what is his blessing? It was uh, referred to as a patriarchal blessing, and it's very different than the birthright. And, and I find this very interesting. You wouldn't know this stuff if you didn't know the historical context. Um, so so the, the birthright that uh, Jacob snatched away from Esau a couple of chapters before this was a, a material um, uh, of material value. This blessing actually had no material wealth attached to it. It had nothing to do with birth order. Uh, basically, whichever son received the blessing was receiving absolutely nothing tangible from their father. Uh, but at the same time, they were receiving something far more important. Essentially, a, a patriarchal blessing was the opportunity for the father to basically pick which of their son, uh, which of their sons they wanted to bless. They wanted to succeed the most in life and it, almost in a, a prophetic manner uh, declare that this son was the one that was going to be blessed uh, moving forward in life. And so, of course, that would uh, make things uh, nice and flowery and wonderful for the son that received the blessing, but the one who didn't uh, felt shafted. So this system seems barbaric to us today, right? But uh, this is not today uh, that this is occurring in, hence the importance of understanding historical context. Being firstborn back then meant a great deal. It usually meant you were going to get most of the inheritance and, and have some authority one day over your siblings and and nobody who could do anything to change the system um, cared enough to, to bother to change it. So the patriarchal blessing was a big deal. And, um, and when 
Esau comes in to receive it, there's even more on the line here because the understanding is that the line of Abraham, the line of, of Isaac, uh, what God has declared is that this line would be a line of kings, uh, a line that would eventually lead to the Messiah, uh, a line that would number with the stars. Their descendants would be great. And, um, and so Esau's expectation is he's walking in to get this blessing, basically not just from his father, but, but from God above. And so we need to understand the historical context of what a blessing was, but also uh, connect that back to God's covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and what truly was expected to be relayed in this blessing. Uh, the, Isaac had two sons. The, the line of Abraham and Isaac could only continue in one direction. It couldn't go with both sons. One had to be chosen. And uh, Esau was desperate for this, this blessing. But as we can tell from the story, Jacob was equally desperate. And his mother uh, added on top of that, put them over the top, and, and they, um, they connived and deceived their way into receiving the blessing for Jacob. Uh, so, so why is this passage included in Scripture? This is not a historical textbook. It's the Bible. So uh, we have to ask ourselves, what significance does it have for us? What can we learn? What can we take away from it? Um, and it's that piece that God was relaying his blessing to uh, Jacob, even though it wasn't fair, even though um, he deceived his way into it. One of the two sons would receive the blessing and uh, would be blessed by God to continue the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and, and on down to the Messiah. And Jacob was going to get to be that guy. So we could debate all night long um, about whether that's fair or not. Um, and because that has nothing to do with historical context, we're not even going to talk about it. So I'll leave that as a, a question uh, lingering out there for you to stew over. Um, but it, ultimately, it's from Jacob's line that Jesus would one day enter the world. And it's uh, we can only appreciate that as we understand the historical context of this giving of the blessing uh, by Isaac to Jacob in our story today. And Stephen's going to take us uh, in a completely different direction. Yes. <clears throat> so hopefully we don't have to debate that all night long, as Paul said. <laughs> so uh, we're going to um, stay in the Old Testament, but we're going to look at um, idolatry. So looking at, so understanding the historical context of Scripture, we're going to look at idolatry and, and the influence it has on the Old Testament, which is a ton. So the theme of idolatry dominates the Bible really as a whole and um, honestly still dominates today. Um, and there are cultures that still have idols, and, and I would say our culture has idols. They just look differently. Um, the definition of idolatry, according to Webster, is the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for, for some person or a thing. An idol is anything that replaces the one true God. The most prevalent form of idolatry in the Bible times was the worship of images that were thought to embody various pagan deities. So um, so we're going to look at a specific passage that kind of really gets to the heart of idolatry. But there's um, there's so much um, about idolatry in the Old Testament. Um, I'm sure if you read any portion of the Old Testament, you'll see how often idolatry comes up. So we look at Psalms. Um, 115 verses 2 verses 2 through 8 and it says why do the nations say where is their God our God is in heaven he does whatever pleases him but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands they have mouths but cannot 
but can't speak, eyes but can't see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So this is just a very revealing aspect of idolatry is that they were images, um, really symbols that represented a god. So sometimes those symbols and, symbols and images they really thought were the gods, and then sometimes those symbols and images represented the gods, and they had may have lived somewhere else. Um, so just a little tidbit, um, if you may not have known this, um, God... When God, in the plagues, when God did the ten plagues against Egypt um, that we read about in Exodus, actually, all of those plagues um, were associated with the gods of Egypt. Um, and I challenge you, look it up. Um, it's actually, it's a fantastic um, sort of research to see how all the plagues aligned with the gods of Egypt. So when God was, um, had the ten plagues, he was really um, condemning and um, showing Egypt the false gods um, that they were worshiping. And God was revealing himself as the one true God. So the gods of ancient Mesopotamia could each could have various aspects associated with it. So, But we're going to just look at three aspects that most um, ancient Mesopotamian gods had. Three aspects. First aspect, they all had a natural aspect. So the god was associated with the element of nature or the cosmos, such as water or the sun. The second is the second aspect is they had a characteristic aspect. The god was associated with a certain trait, usually of a human of human nature or society, such as wisdom or justice. And the third aspect that most gods had was a physical cultic aspect, that the gods um, was represented in a human-like image, having human-like characteristics, um, and they all and the the gods would dwell in in specific temples. So, for example, the god Shemesh was cosmically associated with the sun, first aspect, and it was in charge of justice, the second aspect, and it physically dwelt as a statue in the main temple of his city cyper so that's the third aspect and, and you can even see that when you look at ancient um, gods of the romans or the greeks like they all have they're associated with some sort of natural element the water the sun lightning thunder and then they're associated with an, a characteristic um, such as wisdom or justice or war or fighting and then they usually had a physical point um, so like the guy was located in Ephesus or the guy was located in, in Corinthians. And I know we're talking about the old Testament here, but idols cross over <laughs> on both Testaments. So in ancient times, um, everything that the society did was associated or connected to their God. The government and family structures were all connected to the worship of a God. There wasn't this separation of church and state that we understand in the 21st century. Um, this idol was nearly the sole focus of the people. Um, these people, in a sense, really represented their God everywhere. Um, so again, the God was all-consuming. It consumed everything that the people did from their waking moments to the moment they went to bed, that God of their city or the God of their nation would dominate them. So also, to this kind of on a side note, 
Um, when ancient Mesopotamian nations would go to war or peoples go to war, it was really, you almost need to see it as like my God versus your God. So the gods associated with each nation were almost as if they were going to war. Um, and, and so when a nation would go to war against another nation, it was almost like my God versus your God. And, and this gives a little bit of insight when, when the children of Israel would go to war, it was really God judging um, the people and their God and showing that their God was not real. But that's just a side note. We're not going to delve into that. Um, now the idols were typically made of stone or wood and usually covered in some sort of metal. And the priest of um, the idol gods would go into go into uh, long lengths to try to disassociate the idol from the craftsman who made it. Um, but looking at um, Psalms 115, these these gods were um, they couldn't move. They couldn't do anything. As a matter of fact, the Bible says. It says that those who follow those idols became like them. So following idols would, would lead people, people groups into doing detestable things because they were following after a false god. So a lot of idol worship had children, child sacrifice. It had a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of violence. Um, and to follow an idol meant that um, those who worshiped them be, became like them. They, they, they distorted themselves, essentially. Um, and that's why God gives so much warning to the people of Israel about idolatry. Uh, matter of fact, the first commandment is that you have no other God before me. Um, and that had to deal with idolatry. And Israel's worship of false gods is constantly described. Uh, I mean, they're constantly falling into idolatry. And the Bible describes that as adultery. Because So think of it this way. Just as I said, a people group was associated to their God. They were connected to their God. And children of Israel, they were connected to Yahweh. Um, they were connected to, to God as well. That he, They were his people. So when they worshipped other gods, when they followed false gods, that God saw that as idolatry. It's almost like they abandoned God to go um, to go worship or, or go into another relationship, quote-unquote, with another god. It's almost, almost like they left their relationship with God and had another relationship with another god on the side. So the Bible constantly describes idolatry as adultery. Um, and a lot of the Old Testament has the pattern of idol worship. So you have punishment, restoration, and then forgiveness. And this cycle happens a lot throughout the Old Testament. And because and God knew the dangers of idolatry and the worshiping of idols, um, and, and God was continually trying to bring the people away from that. But then sometimes God gave the people over to their idol worship, and it would destroy um, destroy destroy them really um, and and also too um, Paul mentions idolatry and he talks about in first Corinthians that um, sacrifices to idols were also uh, offering them to demons so and, and so in a sense an idol was fake but also there was a spiritual dark spiritual element to the idols um, as well and that's why even the first I believe the first two plagues, um, were actually duplicated. Um, the the sorcerers of Egypt were able to do at least two of the plagues. So there's there's a sense of a spiritual element there um, in the idols. So it's really really dark. Um, and God was con continually trying to bring His people away from idolatry. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of uh, insight into when you're reading the Old Testament. Understand like behind the background of what's going on is there's a lot of times idol worship. 
um, with the people nations around them and and the purpose of um, the people of Israel was to be faithful to their God the one true God not all these false gods and false images but the one true God was the God um, the God that the children of Israel worshiped so now we're gonna jump into the New Testament all right, good news about being in the New Testament is we get to hang out with Jesus uh, for a minute here. So we're going to transition to Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to read for you simply verses 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. All right, so Jesus is uh, flipping over tables. Many of us have heard this story before, maybe as a, a kid in Sunday school, and we have this, this image of Jesus standing outside. You know, we, we know the word temple, kind of like a church in our minds, and, and flipping over these tables, uh, flinging coins everywhere, making a mess, basically throwing a, a righteous... Uh, temper tantrum, a righteous uh, hissy fit. Pretty cool story, even if you really have no clue what the historical context is uh, to it. But it's so much more cool once you get to know what's really going on here. First of all, we, we know that this story takes place in the temple courts. Uh, so this was the holy temple in Jerusalem. It was the center of all religious life, not just for the city, but for the entire nation. Uh, God himself had shown the Israelites as they were wandering in the desert many years before this, how important the, the temple, or at the time it was a, a portable temple called a, a tabernacle, how important that temple was to their life of, of worship and, and service to God. It, it was the focal point of everything that they did. And now the temple was permanently established in Jerusalem. And just like uh, he had in the tabernacle, God was believed to actually live in the innermost room of the temple. So uh, needless to say, this was sacred space, and these were God's chosen people. Their existence was 100% tied up in worshiping and serving God, and doing so revolved around countless rituals of worshiping and making sacrifices and ritual bathing and ceremonies that all took place in and around the holy temple. Maybe some of you grew up in a, a traditional type church. You remember that, that unspoken rule that no one is allowed to set foot in the chancel area of the sanctuary, uh, especially children, because uh, they are not worthy. You know, that's kind of the, the heaviness, the feeling that you get. You're not worthy. It's only for certain people, and uh, you can't get near the altar. You can't go up front. The, the chancel rail uh, is almost like this invisible force field um, is encircling it, and you can't go past it because uh, everything beyond that was holy and sacred space that you're not worthy to be in. Uh, this whole concept really bubbles up out of uh, looking way, way back, historical context, uh, to the, the Jews' understanding of the role of the temple. It's a sacred and holy space and uh, dangerous space, too, knowing that God himself dwelled there and God was both a loving and at times an, an angry God. Of course, history tells us that the Jews, they kept up this lifestyle of, of everything revolving around the temple. They kept up all the rituals, but many of the religious leaders no longer uh, at this point in history had hearts of, of reverence for God. The early days of Moses and, and Aaron and, and the people really um, trying to follow God sincerely didn't last too long, or at least they came and they went over the years. 
And so at this point in history, the people were keeping up pretenses of uh, how to worship God and, and function in and around the temple, but uh, no longer did it have the same um, the same meaning heart-wise for them. They, they just weren't feeling it. They didn't have the relationship with God and the connection with God that was intended. Now, part of, of God's law called the people to sacrifice uh, at the temple. So dating way back into the Old Testament, into Exodus, uh, the people were supposed to bring sacrifices to the temple um, or at the, at the time to the tabernacle so that uh, they could make themselves right with God or at least uh, show honor and glory to God, whether it was a, a sacrifice because they have sinned or just simply because God was, was worthy and deserving of our sacrifices. So uh, the practice was that people would bring uh, grain, they would bring fruits and veggies, they would bring parts of their harvest, they would bring animals of all sorts of different types to the temple to sacrifice to God. And uh, the way it played out, not everyone had a lamb sitting around when a lamb was called for. Not everyone had a couple of doves lying around they could bring with them when they, they were called for for their sacrifices. And not only this, but people often were coming to Jerusalem, to the temple from foreign lands. They were making great pilgrimages, uh, thousands of miles to get to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices at the one and only holy temple. Uh, but they came from foreign lands, so they didn't have the right um, type of currency to be able to buy the, the lamb that they needed for the sacrifice or the doves. So they had to exchange their currency for temple currency. And everyone, no matter who you were, when you came to the temple, were required to pay a temple tax. And so all sorts of opportunities, unfortunately, for the religious leaders to turn what was uh, intended to be a holy and sacred space and, and uh, rituals surrounding sacrifice into a corrupt business enterprise for them to try and pad their pockets and get rich. So the religious leaders and the merchants and the money changers, they, they got quite a racket going here. So basically, they're sitting right outside the holiest structure in all the world where God himself was known to reside, and they were robbing people blind. The cost of the animals they were trying to sell was highway robbery. The exchange rates for these foreign currency to temple to uh, temple currency were ridiculous. Thousands of Jews were coming from thousands of miles away, and they were required to do this all to worship and pay homage to the God whom they loved. And the religious leaders who were supposed to be facilitating this beautiful process were instead using it as a means of stealing from their own people to pad their own pockets. And the whole system was set up to victimize the poorest of the poor and the disadvantaged more than anyone else. These being the people that the religious leaders were called to provide for and protect. And no one could question their behavior and, and all this corruption because the religious leaders were just too powerful. So this, friends, is the historical and the cultural context for this story. This is what's really going on in the background, the setting that Jesus walks into um, when he does what he does. And what does he do? Because he knows what's really going on beneath the surface here. He unleashes his fury on the greed and the corruption that he sees. And he does so with huge crowds looking on. He starts flipping tables and chasing these uh, corrupt, basically, businessmen out of God's sacred and holy space. Why don't the religious leaders just have Jesus arrested for his behavior, uh, for threatening them and, and their enterprise here? Because they were afraid of the crowds. Jesus had garnered enough popularity. He was seen as a great pro prophet at this point, And uh, they were allowed enough, enough slack to, to um, 
to throw a hissy fit here and there, make a radical gesture to try to uh, emphasize whatever their message is because the crowds uh, would, would get on their case if the religious leaders were to threaten the, the prophet that was so greatly respected. So um, the religious leaders sat by, allowed it to happen at that time. Of course, by the end of the week, things had shifted. This is uh, the last week of Jesus' life, and those same crowds that watched him and maybe even cheered him on as he chased away the money changers were the same ones shouting uh, for his crucifixion. So in the short term, it looks like the religious leaders had won. Those who challenge the system and their authority are clearly punished. Uh, but of course, as we all know, Jesus wins out in the end. So historical context is critical, uh, even for these good old stories we remember back from, from Sunday school, to add just layers and layers and layers of, of meaning. Um, and if you don't have the context, you try and make things out of these stories that, that shouldn't uh, be made. You, you start to question, is it okay to have our youth have a bake sale, you know, in the in the narthex after church are they like the money changers no you got to know the historical context you got to understand um, what is really going on here so you know how to apply it and how to appreciate it uh, in your own life Stephen, you got one more for us and i hear it's going to be a doozy yes yeah, so i have one more and uh, apparently we're not doing ba any bake sales in the narthex now thanks paul um, <laughs> it's all good. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, sorry. I need to be listening a little bit more closely. Um, so yeah, so I'm gonna wrap this up here with the last historical context. I think that'd be really helpful for us understanding the Old Testament, and that's to understand the honor and shame culture um, that was prevailing um, in the time of the New Testament. And really, again, just like idolatry, it was prevailing throughout um, Scripture, um, throughout all of Scripture. But looking specifically at the Old Testament, or the New Testament, excuse me, the honor and shame culture was the prevailing culture of the time. And, it, and still, really, in many cases across the world, it still is, I would say, um, in the Middle East and, and then Southeast Asia, an honor-shame culture is still the predominant type of culture um, that, that exists there. So... Um, it's still around, so it's not uh, this completely ancient thing. Uh, though the ancients may have done it differently, but it's still the basics and foundations are still there. Um, this cultural mindset is different than our 21st century Western mindset um, that we have today. Our Western 21st century mindset is much more focused on the individ is individual focus and uh, a more of a guilt-innocence sort of framework of thinking. Um, so... Just a side note, I did a lot of studying for this podcast, for idolatry, and for this one. Um, so I did a lot of digging, a lot of sources. So I am quoting um, different sources here as I speak. And this was, I, I told Paul before we started, this is the most studying I have done since seminary. So um, <laughs> I did a lot of work for this. Um and hopefully it's helpful. So first, a study, a way a study puts our 21st century individual focus they say the organizing principle of the life in the u.s is the individual's ability to control his or her environment um, his or her environment personal or impersonal to uh, to obtain um, quality oriented success either it's wealth or ownership or quote-unquote good looks proper grades and all other countable indications of success in our culture, we are brought up to stand on our own two feet as distinctive wholes, distinctive individuals. 
We are motivated to behave in the right way alone if necessary, regardless of what others may think or say. So if you ever hear the line when people say, do whatever makes you happy, or they say, I don't care what other people say, I'm just going to, again, do what makes me happy or do what I think is right. That, that mentality is an individualistic first mentality that exists in our Western culture, and, and, and it permeates everything. It permeates even the way we read scripture. Um, but these Western mindsets is in stark contrast to the culture of the New Testament and the culture that the New Testament writers were writing to. In the honor and shame culture, the mentality is a collectivist mentality whereby members of a society define themselves chiefly in the terms of their um, identification with key social groups to which they belong. So again, they had a collectivist mentality and whereby they, they their identity was from the societies in which they belong. So, for example, people would say, I, I am a member of the such and such family or I belong to the such and such tribe or ethnic group rather than as is in the case of individualistic societies. Our identity is based on the qualities or accomplishments specific to us as individuals. So the thoughts of individuals during that time, um, during the time of the New Testament, the thoughts of individuals were, were, what are my expectations of my social group? Or how can I act in accordance with what, um, in accordance with my social group so I can preserve my honor? Or how should I evaluate the actions of others in terms of their honor? So they, there's a lot more like, how do I honor my family? How do I honor my people group? I don't want to bring shame to my family. I don't want to bring shame to my people group. As a matter of fact, as I speak through this, I know a movie that just came out, uh, Mulan. Um, a lot of that talk, you'll see that honor and shame talk, I would say is even the basis of the film, that she wants to bring honor to her family and doesn't want to be have the shame of her dad not be able to fight in the war. Um, so that, that, that culture is there. It's, it still exists. Um, so in those cultures and honor and shame culture, the family is everything. Um, and organizing principles, um, are, their lives is about belongingness, about being belonging. Um, and, and a little more contrast too, when we think of guilt in our culture, we have a, instead of an honor, shame, it's more of a guilt and innocence sort of, sort of, um, that exists. So it's, it's triggered in an individual who's confronted with wrongdoing is when we, we have guilt. Um, so we have an internal voice of conscience when we, when, we re, when we think of guilt in Western culture. But in those cultures, in, in honor, shame, when it comes to guilt, um, the conscience exists in the community rather than in the individual. Thus, the community that accuses not the eternal voice, and it's what the community produces, is, is public shame. So for us, like we feel guilt to the individual, to us, but in honor shame culture, guilt exists because of the culture brings the guilt or the shame or the community, excuse me. And then finally, just looking at real quick, just two different types of honor. You have ascribed honor and you have acquired honor. So ascribed honor is honor that people get because of the family they're born into or the people group they're a part of. So it's an honor for someone that hasn't done anything. It's, it's ascribed. And then you have acquired honor, which is basically self-explanatory. It's, it's an honor that's received based off your, what you've accomplished or based off what you achieved. 
Um, and it's and the accomplishment is valued by one's society. What the society says is important. Again, so when you look at these these honor shame cultures and then our individualistic culture, really it's the honor shame culture is more group identity. It's not that there is an individual. There is an individual, but the group identity is predominant. Um, and then in our culture, we have the predominant identity is individual identity. And now it doesn't mean like there isn't crossover because I will say in our society, we do have a lot of group identity as well. But it's the individual identity that's most predominant and, and vice versa for group identity. OK, so and to wrap this up, we're going to look at I want us to look at the parable of the lost son from an honor shame perspective. So we're going to look at the parable from the, of the lost son from an honor-shame perspective. So first, well, first we'll start off for the son. When the son asks for his inheritance, he's really, in essence, telling his father he wished he was dead. So you're, you're talking to the head of the family. So he's like, I want my inheritance. He's essentially telling his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Of course, that's not what you want to do in honor-shame culture where the family is everything. Second, the younger son brings shame to his family by his actions, what he does with his money and how he's living. So he wastes his money on many, many different shameful things. So he, he just shame, his money is completely wasted. Third, we look at when the younger son is feeding and eating with the pigs. That is perhaps the most shameful thing you can do as a Jew. Like if Jews had night, <laughs> I know Jews have nightmares, but you know, the pigs and unclean animals were the most shameful thing that you can imagine. So like to the Jew for, for this young man to be eating from the pigs and to kind of be living with them, it doesn't get much worse than that. And then fourth, um, he had to build up his confidence to go back to his family, the family that he shamed, the father that he said, I wish you were dead. And um, and he, when he was thinking about going back, he wasn't thinking about going back as a son. He was thinking about going back as a servant because he said, you know, I've done so much to my family. Um, I have to go back as a servant. I, I don't even deserve to be a son anymore. Um, so that's the fourth aspect. The fifth aspect with looking at the parable from an honor shame perspective, when the father comes running, this was not the proper thing to do. Um, for the father to come running. And I've heard it described too, and fathers in that time had robes, and you, he would have to pull up his robe um, to run. And that's just not something that a father would do. And then finally, the sixth aspect, um, for the father to accept his son back fully into the family is really quite shocking. Um, for him to accept this real this son that's brought all this shame on the family and the father comes and runs and hugs him and kisses him that's that is something that you do not expect um, in this honor shame culture and then seventh the seventh aspect is the older son it, it, it helps us understand the older son's anger because he hasn't done anything to shame the family um, but the older son actually brings honor to his family by doing everything that's important for the family. He even says, he's like, Father, I've done everything you've told me to do. Um, so the older son is like, he's like, I'm bringing honor to the family. I'm doing everything I can. And the younger son comes back and he gets a party. You know, it's, it's so completely upside down. And then finally, the eighth aspect of this story is that this story of the prodigal son would have spoken very strongly um, to those who Jesus um, most interacted with. 
because Jesus interacted with the outcasts and the people who were quote unquote unclean and, and the people who were disowned. So you think of the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the lepers. All those people were like prodigal sons. All of them had been disowned by their family. They had no family. They had, matter of fact, families probably disowned them and said, no, that's not my son anymore. Um, and, and they were alone. There was no one there for them. They were the outcasts of society who did not have that family identity that was so prominent during that time. So when they hear this story of this of this prodigal son, this this the son that brought all the shame to the family, but welcome back in, this would have spoke volumes to um, those people that Jesus had the most interaction with. Um, so that's just a different aspect of pro- of seeing um, that parable that um, from an honor shame perspective. Um, the shame that that young man brought to his family, but then the acceptance of the father bringing him back into the family um, was a shocking thing for that to happen. Um, so I, I'll wrap this up and <laughs> and uh, just thank you everyone for listening. Um, I really, Paul and I really pray that these podcasts have been edifying and encouraging um, for your faith. Um, just a reminder, we have our um, 8.30 parking lot service, 10 o'clock in-person service, and our 11.30 streaming service, which are also hoping to have 11.30 in-person here soon. So keep your eyes and ears open um, for any announcements. So again, thank you all for listening, and uh, take care. <laughs>